Welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. Our host is Shaughnessy Terrell, an attorney on Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney for the Marion County Prosecutor's Office Special Victims Unit. She will explore resources available to help survivors on their path to healing and how the community can come together to help these survivors and find ways to end sexual abuse. This is Support for Survivors. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Support for Survivors. I am your host, Shauna C. Terrell, and we are happy to have you. I am very pleased to welcome Eric Kaufman to the show today. Eric is the prosecuting attorney, or the district attorney, as it is called in many jurisdictions, for Delaware County, Indiana, home of the Ball State Cardinals. Eric was elected prosecuting attorney in 2018, but has been with the office since 2001. Eric still prosecutes nearly all homicide cases and other selected crimes of violence. He also prosecutes all child homicides and shaken baby syndrome or abusive head trauma cases filed in Delaware County. I want to point out that that's actually a pretty big deal. A lot of district attorneys are more administrative figures to make those decisions, but they don't stay in the trenches actually trying cases like Eric has. That's pretty cool. Eric has become active in both enforcing and improving Indiana's failure to report child abuse and neglect statute. Eric serves as the regional chair of the Regional Child Fatality Review Team and is a member of the Greater Indiana Statewide Child Fatality Review Team. Eric has been a strong advocate for children for his entire career. Welcome, Eric. Thank you for coming. We're happy to have you. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited. We're both back in the office. I am today, at least. So it's, it's a change of pace for me. I'm not sure about you. Well, yeah, we've been back for a couple weeks, so. You're back at it. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about your background. You've been a prosecutor for your entire legal career. How did you choose this path? That's an interesting question because when I first started law school, and as I finished up law school, I really wanted to go into labor law, labor arbitration, and those kind of things. And then I was a law clerk here in this office. Uh, I was also a uh, un- an undergraduate. I was a uh, intern but I was a law clerk during law school here and I uh, was able to become a certified legal intern where you can practice law under the guidance of an, of an attorney. And I tried my very first felony case while in law school and won and I liked it. And, uh, <laughs> and I've been here ever since. So I guess I'm not doing labor law. Someone once asked me uh, about prosecution. And I was like, you know, it comes with the highest highs and the lowest lows. And you know, you've done right by somebody. It feels pretty good, but when you feel like you haven't or you fell short, it, the worst feeling ever. The reason I asked you specifically to come on the show is because you have been such a long time outspoken champion for kids. Is there a case that you remember that stoked that passion or another reason that you've kind of taken this on your entire career? Actually, there is. Um, There was a case quite some time ago here in Muncie and it was horrendous. It was awful. A a biological father essentially had stolen a a five-year-old girl from her mother out of state and move the child in with with his new wife and and her family and she was systematically tortured and abused beaten psychologically and physically abused she ultimately was poisoned with salt and died as a result of acute salt poisoning which is quite rare and uh, her name was lauren mcconnell and so the lauren mcconnell case sticks with me Um, and that was a case where we not only where i not only prosecuted the the person who I thought was responsible, which was the stepmother. But after that case, 
was finished, I, I didn't feel whole. I felt there were more people responsible because there was a household full of adults who did nothing, who watched all of this happen and did nothing. And so I started thinking uh, and hitting the law books and I realized that what they really were were accomplices to neglect of a dependent resulting in death. And so I charged them all with that. Nice. They're all still in prison. That's amazing. And that is so cool that you were strategic about it and figured out a way to get it done. Cause as we're going to talk about today, there are a lot of gaps in the law and some of them we just don't know about until we encounter them. And then you're trying to figure out what you can do. And oftentimes there's nothing we can do except for try to get the law changed, but how rewarding an instance where you did the groundwork and you figured out a way to get it done. So that's pretty awesome. I think that that type of scenario happens all too often. And we see it a lot. I've seen that a lot of times. And were there other children in the house? There were, and um, none of them were abused. It was only Lauren that was singled out and abused. I can't count how many times I've seen that happen. Maybe not on such a scale as this, where you have a child who's been murdered, but all varieties of abuse on one child only and every other child in the house. Nothing. It's very, very troubling. I want to start off and talk about sex crimes trials generally. We'll talk about both those involving child witnesses and those involving adult witnesses or victims. It's my, I've tried lots of different cases. I haven't tried as many cases as you, but I've tried quite a few and all kinds of different cases. In my opinion, sex crimes trials have always been the most difficult. Do you find that to be true? And what do you think makes them difficult? I I do. I agree with that. I think any sex crime prosecution, whether you're talking about a child or an adult is is uh, wrought or or fraught with all kinds of of issues because sex complicates things. People are uncomfortable talking about it. They're uncomfortable thinking about it, I think. And the worse your case is, the worse, and what I mean by that is as the facts become worse and more heinous, in my opinion, jurors don't want to believe that happens in this world. And going back to the Lauren case for a second, when I was trying to think about a way to pick a jury, that it was so heinous and so awful, it was like you're reading from a, a science fiction book. And so I had to somehow relate to the jury, no, this is real. This really happened. I'm not making this up. You, you can't block me out and say, no, this doesn't happen in America today because it does. And so as these sex cases, as, as the facts get worse and worse and worse, jurors, I think, want to either block it out because it's so bad and, and it's so emotional, or they don't want to believe that it actually it occurs. And sex um, is different. Oh, go ahead, sorry. Sex yeah, it, it like people lose their minds as soon as sex gets involved with it. And we always talk about the classic example. If you take a robbery versus a rape and ask a robbery victim the same questions you ask a rape victim, it makes no sense whatsoever. But that's what people do. As soon as the victim walks in the door, the jury is already they're bringing all those biases with them as it relates to the world, as it relates to sex. And from the first second, they, it's weird. It's very, very strange. The psychology of that, I think in terms of comparing it to other kinds of crimes. Yeah. I've read a lot of um, uh, psychological articles uh, from journals on that very subject about these preconceived notions that people have men and women alike. In fact, I think they're different men and women have different preconceived notions about what a rape victim should should look like, what they should say, what they should act like in court, 
uh, how they should tell what happened to them. And, and there really is no such thing as a standard victim of a, of a sex case. And it's difficult to get the jurors to, to leave those preconceived notions of, well, you know, if, if this were me, how would I react? How would I tell my story? And so jury selection becomes very, very critical. Such a good point. So we're talking in jury selection. We've already got these biases that they're bringing in with them. And real quick, on an aside, I want to ask you a question. Uh -huh. Do you find any demographic in terms of jurors to be harder on victims than others? Sometimes I think women are, to be honest with you. That's uh, exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> in, in many of the sexual assault cases that I've tried, I, I try to talk to the jury afterwards, after win or lose, because I can always learn something from them. And what I find uh, or what I have found is that women have either held the victim to a higher standard or view their testimony different than men do. Um, and I'm not saying all the women jurors, but I think, mm -hmm. and that, that, that's surprising, I guess, sort of surprising. Uh, you would think it'd be the other way around, but it's not. That was exactly how I felt about it when I was still trying these cases as a prosecutor. It seemed like the female jurors were much much harder on um, victims than male jurors were. And so of course, you know, in order to do our jobs effectively, you're always trying to read up on things and figure things out so you can do better the next time. And the best theory that I could come up with was, again, it's those worldviews and thinking this could happen to me and not wanting to think this could happen to me. So kind of challenging everything, especially if you have a defendant who is good looking, uh, smooth talker. And I think some jurors, female jurors specifically look over at him and think if that guy could do this and this could happen to me too. And maybe that does something with their heads. I don't know. I think that the jury, sorry for the bad pun is still out on that one, but. I agree with you. I, that, that, I think there are many different psychological reasons why that is and i i'd like to read i mean if somebody wants to do some some research <laughs> on that let me know but i i think there's multiple reasons for that that they they, they don't want to be able to see themselves as a as a uh, potential victim and so that they hold this victim that's in front of them on the witness stand to a higher standard and and, and really look at her a little too close if you will in terms of uh, of evaluating how she speaks and how she reacts and what she says I've had this conversation with multiple other people and without fail, every single prosecutor who has tried sex crimes that I've asked this question to had the same answer and every layperson or even attorneys who just don't do this kind of work did not think that that was the case and were surprised, which I was surprised too at the beginning. It is, it's definitely a bit of a conundrum. So you have done cases with both child witnesses and adult witnesses or victims how, how does that differ when you've got a case with a child victim versus an adult victim? I think it's definitely very different in terms of preparation and how, how your, what your plan is to get your evidence in through your victim. You know, so you've had a victim who's been through probably some significant psychological, maybe physical trauma. And then there's all that, that research out there about memory and when you've been through that trauma and how fragmented your memory can be. So you're dealing with that as an adult. And then when you lay, you know, add on top of that, a child victim, you add on a whole set of other issues about child appropriate language and, and, and how they're gonna be perceived by the jury and how fragmented their memories are uh, after going through this trauma. And sometimes the pressure their family 
puts upon them one way or the other. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I've had cases where children have been sexually abused and I find out later that someone in their family said something off, off the cuff that, you know, well, does grandpa really need to go to jail? And so that caused that child some, some serious psychological issues, you know, prior to testifying, mm -hmm. influence the testimony. So I think, I guess that's a long answer to your question. I think that's definitely diff different. No, it's not long at all. I think it's uh, really good. And even the way the case has come to us are different. When you have an adult victim of a sex crime, you know, they've been interviewed by a police officer. But for kids, we do something else. We, call, we do what's called a forensic interview. Can you explain what the forensic interview is and why we do that with kids? Sure. So a forensic interview is hopefully done at a what's called a child advocacy center. And it's done in a child-friendly room, meaning it's not, you're not, you don't haul a child into a police station where there are handcuffs and shackles and guns and bad guys. And um, there's usually a, two, a, two chairs and a, uh, like a dry erase board. And the interviewer is specifically trained and has extensive training on how to elicit facts without being leading and suggestive. It, it's sort of to let the child say what happened to them and not plant facts into the child's mind, which would then obviously taint your investigation and your interview. So you have the forensic interviewer and the child in the room and it's videotaped. And, and there's certain protocols they go through about truth and a lie and how you determine based on the child's age, the difference between the truth and a lie and how it has to, you have to tell the truth in this room. And they're usually pretty successful at either getting a disclosure, meaning the child tells what happened to them, or they don't. Again, those are those are done at child advocacy centers where the people are, are very well trained in how to do these things. So is there an age cutoff or is it kind of arbitrary? Is it based on maturity level when if a kid is in their say late teen years heading, you know, into the adult years where we transition from forensic interviews to a regular interview with a police officer? Uh, in my personal opinion, I think it all has to do with maturity level and comfort and ease that the child has. I think it has to be done on a case by case basis. I don't think today that, you know, at a certain age, we're going to interview this person, this child at a, a police station. I think you have to look at the maturity level and you have to look at the, that child individually and say, well, what's best for the child? And these forensic interviews are very important, obviously, because we've talked a little bit before on the podcast about the neurobiology of trauma and what that does to a person's memories. So if you have that sort of thing going on with an adult victim, and now you're thinking about a kid who remembers things differently anyway, so it's so important that you have someone who's trained specifically in all of these things to be able to ask them those questions to garner information but not plant the information in their head, which it sounds like you have to have some finesse to really be able to do that effectively. Yeah. And I, I actually quite some time ago went through the, the training to become a forensic interviewer uh, and got certified myself. Several of my deputies are as well. And in the end, it was beneficial. I had a trial once where the child molest victim froze up on the stand with me and I, I wasn't exactly sure what to do. And for whatever reason, it popped into my mind, well, I'm just going to turn this into a forensic interview. And uh, I wheeled a little chalkboard over that was in the courtroom and just started from the beginning as they do, you know, tell me who lives in your home. Let's draw the picture of them and so on and so forth. And went through the forensic interview steps in place of direct testimony 
as you know, question answer as, as you typically see it. And it worked out well that he, the child became very much at ease because he had been through the forensic interview once before. He then told what happened to him and it worked out. We got a successful resolution. So that was a brilliant move and a good example of how you are one of the best trial attorneys in the state. Definitely one of the most successful. You're really good. And they're lucky to have you. They're lucky you're still doing them because a lot of people, like I talked about a little bit in your intro, when people become the big boss, they don't try cases so much anymore. So I think it's a testament to your character that you're still in the trenches doing it because that's two very different roles with the administrative stuff and then the trial attorney stuff. So I, I am impressed with you for that, for sure. I appreciate um, it. There's one, yeah. there's one thing that was important to me, and it's hard to balance those, to be honest with you, to, to balance, the, to run an office and do all the policy stuff and then also be in the courtroom. But it was important to me to keep doing that for many reasons. Number one, I like trying cases. Number two, I don't want to lose, lose the skill. I mean, I think if you're out of the courtroom for so long, you, you get rusty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, once I became elected, I was determined that I was going to stay in the courtroom to, as much as I could. That's awesome. So we talked a little bit now about the way, you know, the cases are come to you in terms of how the information is even presented from the get-go. In terms of prosecuting the case, kind of from the moment the file lands on your desk all the way through disposition, do you think there are a lot of differences in how a case with a child victim proceeds versus a case with an adult victim proceeds? Not necessarily. Just It's just a different set of facts and it's a different mm-hmm. investigation. So, for example, you know, I may want to talk to an adult victim of a crime before I file a charge and I'll just bring them up and we'll talk. Well, with kids, you really don't want to do that because it, it really corrupts the, the integrity of the, the forensic interview theory or process. So I don't want to bring the child up to my office and ask questions and suggest, you know, somehow plant things in the child's mind. So you're really basing your case on the, the forensic interview, which is huge, and plus other cooperating facts and, and other facts that were brought out in the investigation. So it, it's different in that respect. I totally agree. I had a case once where, it, and we're going to talk a little bit more about how the law has changed recently in terms of the questions that can be asked of child witnesses and however many times it can be asked. I had a case where a defense attorney was trying to impeach my eight-year-old victim on the stand and she wasn't doing it properly and she was taking things out of context. And um, we actually were able to end up entering the forensic interview and evidence, which is something that we can't typically do in Indiana because she was doing that. And I think it backfired on her because she was kind of impeaching him on some collateral issues, things that didn't really matter and really attacked him. But it was interesting to see how the jury reacted to that because he did have, in that case, he was old enough, you know, he had, given the forensic interview, he had given a deposition and then he was there on the day of trial and it was the same exact thing every single time. But you're right. If you ask a little kid the same question in five different ways, you're going to get five different answers. And so it's really easy to muddy those waters and try to make it seem like a kid's lying when they're not. It's just, you've asked them a different question and they're a child. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really important point in terms of adult victims versus kid victims, because they're really two different skill sets in learning how to navigate those cases as a prosecutor or a civil attorney or an investigator or whomever. And a lot of times, at least the prosecutors, especially if you're doing any kind of sex crimes, you're doing both the cases who have adult victims and the child victims. So you have to figure out these things 
as to both and be able to move forward as both. And so it's hard. It's not easy. And so. No, it's not. And kids, kids speak a different language than we do. I have four kids. And so I know exactly what you're saying. You can ask them the same question that should elicit the same response four times. But if you ask it four different ways, you may get four different answers and they're not lying. It's just, I'm talking adult talk and they're talking kid talk. An example of that was not my case, but in a child molest case that the, the victim was asked, did so-and-so touch you? And he said, and the victim said, no. So that was on cross-examination. On redirect examination, the prosecutor had to bring that back around. What do you mean? No. Why did you say that? Tell me what happened. Well, he put his private part in me. Well, to him, that wasn't a touch. Mm -hmm. It's all about the language you use in in, in, in talking with children. They have different definitions of things. So it's like a whole new vocabulary almost, particularly when you get in the courtroom. And I and we can get into that, I guess, a little later with the depositions and stuff. But I think some defense attorneys do things on purpose. Some don't, you know, lawyer, if, if they don't deal with kids cases that often, I mean, you can get into court and you can ask kids questions and just out of habit, you're talking adult talk and not kid talk. And then there are others that do things on, on purpose, but. Yeah, absolutely agree. I had a deposition once where defense attorney and who's not trying to pull anything it's just a legitimate question said did your grandpa touch your vagina and the little girl said no and then the prosecutor on redirect said does your grandpa tickle your cookie and she's like yeah all the time and then you know flush that out what that meant to her that a lot of kids have don't use anatomically correct terms and they have different verbiage for it and you as a prosecutor it's your responsibility to make sure that you know what that kid's language is and that you're using it and then explaining it to the jury during trial. Mm-hmm. And jury selection. I think that ought to oh. be discussed in jury selection extensively as much as a judge will let you, you know, kid talk versus adult talk. Absolutely. Let's talk about some of the gaps in the law and we're going to talk about how what we see here in Indiana. So I want listeners to understand that there are some serious gaps and sometimes they're glaring and we can see them from afar and other times not so much, but then we'll, we'll come across a case that has a weird little loophole in it. And then we figure out that there's a huge hole and then we have to try to do something about it. So the number one that always strikes me and when I was at IPAC, I, for three different years, I tried to, uh, I, I wrote different bills trying to get this changed. So they're working hard and trying to get it amended in the state house. But one of the worst ones I think on the books is a sexual battery statute in Indiana. <laughs> you want to talk about that a little bit? Yes, it's an awfully written statute, and and I know IPAC is working hard to get that fixed. It wasn't fixed this past session. I hope it gets fixed next year. The problem is, in Indiana, sexual battery sounds easy, right? So you're going to batter somebody in a sexual way, but that's not what it is. There's an element of force. The prosecutor has to prove force, and I want to use an example, if I might, uh, about a case we had. We had, and I can talk about the facts because we've tried the case and it's over with. So there was a, I don't know what he was exactly, an LPN or some sort of a nurse, nurse's aide or something in the hospital. And there was an elderly woman in her 70s who was basically, I can't remember her exact physical handicap, but she really couldn't move in her bed. And so he came in to, in his words, adjust her catheter and ended up fondling her genitals, her vagina. And... We went to trial. She was a great witness. She testified as to what happened. And 
problem was there was no force. So when the jury's instructed by the judge that we had to prove that the defendant forcefully did something, well, he didn't. He didn't hold her down. I mean, he didn't tie her up. He didn't put a gun to her head. What he did was, is he, when he was allegedly changing a catheter, touched her in a way to satisfy himself. So there was what's called a lesser included, which was a, a, a simple battery, meaning a, a rude touching in a rude, insolent or angry manner. And the jury struggled with that for hours in deliberation. They wanted to, and I talked to them, I didn't try the case, but I, I, I talked to them afterwards because I knew this case was coming. Our deputy did a fine job trying the case, but the jury struggled with this force element and the verdict, I'll just tell you, they, they found the, the, the guy guilty of battery, which is a B misdemeanor. I mean, it's almost nothing for what he did, but it, the jury followed the law. They could have said, you know, law be damned, I'm going to find him guilty of the sexual battery. They didn't do that because there wasn't any force. And we t and the jury and I talked about that for a long time. The element of force needs to be removed from the sexual battery statute so that if I walk up to a person, whether it be a male or a female, and grab their genitals or their breasts, that is sexual battery regardless of whether I hold you down or hold a gun to you. Now, if I do those things, I think that should be an enhancement. If I hold you down and do it, if I pull a weapon on you, that ought to be an enhancement to enhance the offense. But just merely walking up to you and grabbing your private parts, that ought to be sexual battery. And under current Indiana law, it's not. And I don't know why. It's absolutely insane. And that is the exact pretty much scenario that we used in our rationale for the past few years when we were trying to get it changed is you could be in a bar and somebody comes and touches you in that way. And they're looking at a B misdemeanor, which in Indiana, that's nothing, you guys. Like they're not, that's nothing. And that is just disgusting. And I'm actually glad that you brought up that case that your deputies tried. We act, my firm, Conan Ladd, actually represents her in her civil proceeding on that. And so I'm not going to go too far into it, but you know, in, in the course of the investigations, we have found that he had done this prior to other people in a different jurisdiction, not up in Delaware County and continued to do it. That, that's absolutely unacceptable that he was allowed to continue to do that. But I talked at length with your deputy after the trial, and I, I honestly was pretty impressed with the jury for following the law like that, for understanding it, because not everybody understands the law, even when they're sitting on these cases and following it. And, the, and he told me that they were just sick over it because they 100% believed every word she said, but there really wasn't a whole lot they could do for her because the law failed her on that. The law did fail her. And I think going into that case, the deputy and I, the deputy prosecutor and I had multiple discussions on, are we taking this to trial? Because he would have pled to the B misdemeanor battery. We had what an argument about force, you know, that she, that she was unable to move and unable to, you know, fight back and whatnot. But that really, that wasn't force. So I made the decision. Some cases just have to be tried. Okay. We're just going to let the, the jury tell me, what the law is and, and what the right outcome is. And, and so we took it to trial and they filed the law and you're absolutely right. The law failed that victim miserably. And that's what a good prosecutor does. If you ethically think that you have a chance, you have probable cause, you believe your victim, it's the damn right thing to do. And, you know, I know that across the country, not everybody subscribes to that. And it, the easy thing would be to dismiss it when you know you're probably not going to come out on top. But the right thing to do is try it. And that those are the kinds of examples that do get the law changed. Those are the kinds of stories that legislators will listen to when you can bring in a constituent and say, hey, 
here's what happened to this person. And if we don't change it, it's going to happen to other people. And then that's on us. So I think you mentioned this already. What do you think would be a fix to it? Obviously getting rid of that force element of the actual crime and then just adding it as an enhancement. I think sexual battery needs to have a component. I think it ought to be worded. I don't have the statute in front of me, but it should be the equivalent of a child molest fondle case. So, so that you're touching, you, you touch somebody and you can list the parts if you'd like in the statute and the purpose of the touching, you do so with the intent to either arouse your sexual desires or the person being touched, their sexual desires. Okay. That then removes the element of force. So for example, with a child, if you fondle a child's genitals, I don't have to prove force. If I prove that you fondled the genitals, that's child molest. I get the conviction. So we need an adult version of that. And that's called sexual battery. I don't know why force is required because I think it's quite insulting to have what happened to that woman. And I know there, there are probably many instances across the state where there are different facts, but equally as heinous, and you're stuck with a B misdemeanor. And I mean, a B misdemeanor is disorderly conduct. It's possession of marijuana. It's minor driving offenses. I mean, it's a slap in the face to somebody who gets what I'm going to call molested as an adult, because as, as a child, that's mm-hmm. what we call it, child molestation. Yeah. You're just being molested as an adult. It needs change. It needs change now. And there are a lot of inconsistencies in this law or in these laws in Indiana. And that one, I think, is a glaring one. And so when I was at IPAC, obviously, my job, part of my job was taking calls from prosecutors around the state. So I had sort of a front row view into a lot of these different nuances within the laws across the state of Indiana and what they were doing. Another good example is we have a child seduction statute. The age of consent in Indiana is 16, as it stands right now. A 16-year-old in Indiana can have sex with whomever they want unless that person under the child seduction statute is somebody who works at school or church or something like that. So I had a case once where a prosecutor called and a youth pastor had started a sexual, I'm going to put this in air quotes, consensual sexual relationship with a 16 year old, but it didn't fit into the statute because the pastor was on a volunteer basis rather than a paid basis. And because of that, they could not prosecute him for anything. And so it's like, well, what the heck? This doesn't make any sense just because he's not being paid by them. You know, you have the whole rationale behind the statute is you don't want teachers or people in positions of authority or care who have any kind of control over these kids to be able to take advantage of that. We've got a case where we're talking about this kid's, in their opinion, maybe eternal salvation and godliness. And that's a pretty big deal, especially to a 16-year-old, I would think. And there wasn't anything we could do about it. So I think that that's just another good example of some of the nuances within these laws. And when the language is convoluted, that it leaves prosecutors hanging out on a limb with nothing they can do except try to get the law changed for the next kid. Yeah. I I don't know if, you know, we talk about sex is different. Sex changes everything. So I don't know if when these bills get to the legislature, does it, does sex cloud everybody's mind? And, and I don't know why the hell it's so difficult, but it just seems to me the child seduction issue, the sexual battery issue, seems to me, and I know I'm a, a little biased, if you will, but it seems to me the fix is easy, and I just hope it gets done. Yeah, I'd agree with you, but it's crazy how long it's taken some other things to get passed, but that's why we keep on keeping on. I want to talk a little bit about the physical child abuse area, too, because I know that you are an expert in that and have tried a lot of cases. So let's talk a little bit about 
physical child abuse and child homicides and what it's like to try one of those cases. It takes a lot out of you mentally, emotionally, time away from your family because you want to get it right. Because most of the time, and I shouldn't say most of the time, but a lot of the time, there's nobody else there for that child. I can't tell you how many times I've tried a child abuse case, including child, a child homicide case, where there was nobody sitting behind me in the courtroom. I and my co-counsel were the only two people in that courtroom who, who gave a damn about that child wow. and, and fought for justice for that child. And so you want to make sure you get it right. And so what does that do? That takes, that takes you away from your own family to put the hours in to make sure it gets done. And, and some of the cases here have been just horrendous, absolutely horrendous. The Lauren McConnell case, I had a case, Marie Pierre, a, a little Haitian girl who was here and was just systematically tortured to death. And it takes, it takes a lot out of you, as it told you. Um, it takes a lot out of me, the police. And one thing that I never thought about until it was, I think it might've been, the, I don't know if it was Marie's case or Lauren's case, but the jurors had some serious uh, PTSD issues and they actually contacted the court and they didn't know what to do about it. They were having not, several of them having nightmares about the photographs they saw, the videos they saw, what they heard, and they clearly needed some some mental health treatment. Now the question becomes, well, now who's going to provide that, right? So hopefully they have insurance that can do that. To me, the state we ask these people to come in to hear the evidence and to render verdicts and give us their time, and they do a great job of doing that. It seems to me that the state, there should be a fund that if a juror has some sort of post-traumatic stress issue or depression because of the awful things they heard in the courtroom that we've asked them to do, the state should be provide, either mm -hmm. providing the help or paying for the help. Because I think we're leaving jurors exposed uh, to, to hear and see all these bad things. And, you know, thanks for your service. Here's your $45 a day or what, whatever it is you make. Thank you. Have a good day. And I, I don't think that's good enough. It's a really good point. And one I had never thought of, because uh, again, you know, when you've been doing this work for a while, it becomes your everyday. And I don't want to say that we become inhuman to it, but we do learn how to deal with it in one way or another, or we don't when we stop doing it. It's you, you got to think about that too, that especially with graphic images and things like that, a lot of people have never seen anything like that before. And it has to take a toll when they come in there. And you also make a really good point in that sometimes once that file makes it to that police officer's desk, that detective's desk, or to your desk, you may be the first people who's ever given a damn about this kid. And yeah. that that's a lot. It's important, but it does, it's it's heavy because you you got to do right by that kid just as much, if not more than you got to do right by the kid who has a, a courtroom full of people and they're supporting them. Mm -hmm. And that takes a toll on us as well. And you have been such a longtime proponent of the mandatory, the changes in the mandatory reporting law in Indiana. Is that kind of part of it for you? Kind of start there that these kids don't have somebody in their corner a lot of time, or like in Lauren's case, where there's multiple people living in that house and nobody did a freaking thing to help her. Right. Yes. The mandatory child abuse reporting law, uh, and I have a long history. So. <laughs> This was quite quite a number of years ago. Uh, Jeff Arnold was prosecutor, and I was a deputy prosecutor, and we both had the idea. We didn't quite understand how the legislative process worked and how we really needed to go through IPAC and, and so on. 
he had a great bill that he wrote, the protected person statute bill. There were some holes in that. So Jeff wrote this great bill. His sailed through without a problem and it fixed whatever hole was there. I wanted to fix some things about mandatory reporting. Well, you, you would have thought I let off a nuclear bomb at the state house. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, it started huge fights between all kinds of political parties, DCS. I mean, it was a, Suzanne O'Malley was there at the time, tried to help me out. And that's when I learned, I just don't show up at the state house with a, with, <laughs> with, and I had bipartisan support. I had a Democrat and a Republican that were going to offer this bill, but it, it blew up in my face and it never, I don't know that it ever got fixed. But yes, I've been a champion for a long time for mandatory reporting. Right now, it's only a B misdemeanor. So I guess to back up a little bit, anybody in Indiana, anybody, if you have reason to believe that a child is a victim of a of child abuse or neglect, it's not just abuse. If, if you have reason to believe that a child is a victim of child abuse or neglect, you have an absolute legal duty to report that to either DCS or your local law enforcement agency. And while I'm here, I'll just give the plug. The, lo the hotline number to DCS is 1-800-800-5556. And that's the number you call to report child abuse or neglect. My suggestion is you not only call that, but you call your local police department to ensure that nothing gets lost in the crap, so to speak. But it, it really is disturbing how many people know or have reason to believe that a child is being abused and do absolutely nothing about it. It really gets to me. And in almost all of the child homicide cases I've done, whether it be the abuse, the torture cases, um, shaken baby cases where the, where the babies have died or are, or are forever changed and altered in their lives, mm -hmm. there were facts, there were people that knew and all it would have taken was a phone call and those kids may have been alive today. And it really gets me that they didn't do it. You know, obviously, I don't know for sure, but in, in several of them, I know that had it been reported properly by people that knew those children would be with us today. I couldn't agree more. It definitely seemed like every single child homicide I worked on or one with serious bodily injury, that once we fleshed all that out, a lot of people knew or suspected at least that was going on and nobody freaking did anything. And that, I mean, that chaps me pretty deeply, but that I just want to make sure that everybody who's listening to this understands that if you are in the state of Indiana and you suspect child abuse or neglect, you are a mandatory reporter and you are subject to prosecution if you do not do it, period. So yeah. everyone should, I mean, like, not only is it the right thing to do as a human, it's the, there's a law. And I think that that's a societal issue with us as well. We've talked a lot in other episodes about what we call rape culture and the way that people look at things. And I think with stuff inside the home, people are like, it's just not my business. It's not my business. It's not, if it's a neighbor or something like that. Well, it actually, yeah, it is because you're subject to getting arrested yourself if you don't say something. I mean, you're going to, you're going to call the police because <clears throat> your neighbor's dog is barking too loud after 10 PM, but you're not going to call because you think the child is being starved next door. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's disgusting. And you're right. It's the only crime, the only crime in the state of Indiana that you must report. And if you don't, you're subject to prosecution. And I've prosecuted. I do those personally here. I, <laughs> I have filed. I prosecuted a principal for failure to report that a girl was raped on school ground. I charged him, tried him, 
won the case, went all the way to the Indiana Supreme Court, and it was affirmed. Uh, we wanted to bicker over what the word immediately meant because the statute says you have to immediately report. You can't sit and ponder it. You don't get to have your own investigation to decide whether or not you want to report. This principal waited oh, four, five, six hours. Evidence was gone, all kinds of yep. horrific things. And so to me, six hours wasn't immediate. And so I charged him, tried him, convicted him, and the Supreme Court agreed with me. Uh, luckily. Well done. Uh, well, you would think a principal yeah. would do the right thing. My God. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I've sent a, a clear message in my community. I don't care who it is, whether you're a, a teacher, a principal, a doctor, a lawyer. I don't. If you have reason to believe that a child is, is abused or neglected, you better make that phone call or we're going to see each other in court. So, I mean, it's just something I really, really believe in. That's awesome. So you've, you've kind of touched a little bit already on the process of trying to get laws changed in Indiana and it can be quite an arduous journey. But I want to point out and talk a little bit about the success that has happened within the state house in the last couple of years in terms of victims' rights legislation. In 2019, there was Senate Bill 551 that was authored by Senator Mesmer um, and it addressed many gaps in law, but I'm just going to, I want to focus on a few that I think are the big ticket items. One of them was therapy dogs or comfort items allowed in court. Before that, we had gotten a lot of people calling in saying that judges weren't allowing kids, even if it was like a teddy bear or a, in some cases a therapy dog, which can be hidden under the witness stand so the jury doesn't know that it's ever in there. And they weren't allowing it. So we got that so that judges had to. We got a strangulation enhancement passed, which means that if somebody has a prior strangulation, and then they get popped for it again, that it's an uh, enhanced penalty, which is super important because strangulation is much, much more dangerous than a lot of people think about. Another thing that was passed was protective orders for grooming behavior. So if a kid comes to mom and dad and says that, you know, this person is doing X, Y, and Z, and we can all see that it's grooming, but it hasn't quite gotten to that point of being an illegal act, a parent is able to go and get a protective order on behalf of their child. And I think that that's wonderful. The only thing that didn't pass out of that bill in 2019 was the child deposition part of it. And hats off to IPAC, it did pass in 2020. It drastically reduced the situations in which children can be deposed. Will you talk about that a little bit for us, what it means and what you, how you feel about it? Absolutely. And to backtrack a little bit, I've always been, and each day as I go through this career, more and more uh, a proponent and an enforcer of victims' rights. I think what's important to remember, what everybody hears about are rights of the defendant. And I, be I believe in them wholeheartedly, the right to remain silent, the right to a jury trial, the right to all of those things. And those are constitutional rights. If you look at our Indiana Constitution, there is a provision in there about victims' rights. So some of, the, some of the judges across the state need to open up the Indiana Constitution and realize that victims have a constitutional right to certain things. And then beyond that, the General Assembly has passed multiple statutes. There's five or six of them that list what these rights are and what they mean and what a victim has a right to know and what a victim has a right to be, they have the right to be heard. They have the right to be heard before a bond reduction hearing, whether it fits in your court calendar or not. They have a right to be heard. And it's time we start reading those. And if we're going to enforce and uphold defendants' rights, we better uphold and enforce victims' rights. Get off my soapbox a little bit. But Amen. I feel strongly <laughs> about victims' rights. 
The other thing, you're absolutely right. This, what was passed this past session was huge, absolutely huge. My hat's off to Senator Mesmer and Courtney Curtis from IPAC. They worked hard. I was down there a couple of days when there were hearings on it, and it is crucial. And it blew my mind. I didn't know that Indiana at the time, at the time before this bill was passed, we were only one of five states in the entire country that allow a criminal defense attorney to take a pretrial deposition of a child uh, molest victim. Yep. So the federal government, so that in the federal system, and 45 other states prohibit it. And so here's Indiana, and it was time to move forward because, as I hinted or, or talked about earlier, you get in these depositions where you have a child, right? So you have a, a defense attorney, you have a prosecutor, and you have a child. Let's say the child's seven, eight, pick your age. There's already problems with adult talk, child talk. You have problems with attorneys who, who are, you know, they're not trying to do anything underhanded, but the way in which they ask their question leads to confusion, it leads to inconsistent statements, uh, and so on. They don't mean harm, but it happens. And the kid is traumatized again. I've been in deposition. You will not believe the things that they've asked. A defense attorney once asked the victim of a very heinous sexual abuse case, well, what would you like to see done with this case? What is this eight-year-old child going to say? And it was a family member who did it. So first of all, this, do they even understand what do you want? I mean, do they understand plea agreements? No. Do they understand what prison is and time? No. Do they want to see their family member go to prison, even if they understood the concept? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. But and, and it's irrelevant. On top of it all, some there are some defense attorneys out there that will use a deposition to intimidate the child. I've been there. There were testimony from during the hearings. Oh, that doesn't happen. Well, I'm here to tell you it does happen. Mm -hmm. uh, whether by be by body language, the question asked, how close they sit. I mean, I've been in arguments with the defense attorney, how close you're going to sit to that kid. You're not going to sit on top of them. You're, it's not going to happen because there are, and I'm, I'm not begrudging defense attorneys. They play a, a very important role in our criminal justice system. And many defense attorneys in town are, are friends of mine. But there are a few in the state and in the country who will do these things, who will intimidate a child during a child uh, deposition. They'll use big words to confuse them. I had a defense attorney ask one time, so when you were touched, how did, you, how did that make you feel? How do you even answer that question? I mean, I, I, don't think, I, I could go on and on and on. I think an adult would have a hard time articulating that, let alone a child. Right. And so... When I read this bill and I talked with Courtney about it, I mean, it, it was wonderful. As I told her, it was probably one of the best criminal bills I've seen in years, years. And I hope, and I hope that the judges across the state enforce that statute and don't find little wiggle room to let out of it and go back to the old process of let's just depose these children. Because if that's the case, I'd like to be back in front of the legislature and telling them that the statute is not being enforced properly. That's awesome. I, man, I'm so glad kids have you on their side. This is big, you know, and a lot the rationale I think behind bringing it to is explaining and educating the legislature on the fact that in these cases, you have something different that you don't have in other cases. And that's the forensic interview. They've already been asked these questions by a trained interviewer who knows how to ask them in an open-ended way to speak their language without planning answers in their head. 
you don't have that in other cases. And then you have, just as you said, a defense attorney and sometimes us too, like some, some prosecutors and other attorneys aren't trained and they ask the wrong questions as well. You got to be trained in trauma informed stuff. And you're right to take the forensic interviewing training, I think is the absolute best thing that anybody can do to really understand how to do it. But the damage done to the case and also the damage done to the kid, you know, all the research shows that the more times you ask them about it and put them through that, you're re-traumatizing them every time you do it. So we try so hard to not, to, to make this, this process is horrible on them. And we try so hard to make it as easy as possible. And I think that this is just a huge, huge win for kids in terms of making it at least a little bit easier for them to keep going forward. Yeah. It's a home run. And, and one of the things that was brought up in the, um, in the hearings was that, well, the, the defense has a constant, they have a, a, some sort of a li- fictional, by the way, a legal right to depose these children. Well, when you actually look at the law and when you look at the case, there is no right. There is no legal right to take that child's deposition, none whatsoever. And that's what the case law says. So you had people out there saying, well, there, there's mm-hmm. constitutional issues with this. Really? What are they? Enumerate them for me. Well, there's constitutional issues. Well, thank you. Like the whole thing. I mean, uh, <laughs> quartering soldiers and the, I mean, the whole constitution, can you, can you articulate one provision that it violates? No, you can't because it is the bill. The law is constitutional. They put a lot of hard work into it. The discovery process, you know, when we, I can't speak for other counties, but in Delaware County, we have an open file. The defense gets everything, but my notes and my legal research, they get the police reports. They get the videos, they get the pictures, they get the witness interviews, they get the DVD, the video of the forensic interview. They get to hear the child's story. They get to hear what he or she has to say, and they get to see their body language, which is all important to prepare for trial. They get all of that. So again, I, I think that statute was a home run and I'm, I'm, I was so happy when it passed. Huge, huge win for victims in the state of Indiana on that one and finally catching up to the rest of the country also. Yeah. Eric, you've been awesome today. I've taken a lot of your time. Do you have any parting words for listeners? Anything that you think that you'd like for anybody to leave with as we close out? I guess the only thing I want to leave on is mandatory reporting of child abuse. If you have reason to believe that a child is a victim of child abuse or neglect, don't hesitate. Don't ponder it. Don't think about the consequences because the main thing is the health and safety and well-being of that child. And we as a society owe it to them. So pick up the phone, call the DCS hotline, call the local police, make your report and let them investigate. If there's nothing there, they'll find that and there'll be nothing there. If there is something there, your call might just have saved a life. And it's, it's important to help that child and get the intervention that may be needed. And if you don't, that's a crime. And at least here in Muncie and Delaware County, you're gonna be prosecuted for it. Thank you for emphasizing that. It's definitely worth reiterating. And thank you for taking the time to do this. You are a badass and you are, and you're also very fun to hang out with. Uh, I will note that as well. But you've been a tireless advocate for kids and not just in the courtroom, but outside the courtroom, you know, is with your place in the community and sitting on boards and stuff and kids all across Indiana are lucky for your advocacy. Thank you to our listeners. If you find value in our program, please continue to tune in and to share this podcast with others. As always, please submit any questions or requests for guests at supportforsurvivors.com. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.